You are listening to Money on the Left, the official podcast of the Modern Money Network Humanities Division, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. This month, we speak with Victor Picard, Professor of Media Policy and Political Economy at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Picard is a prolific researcher and author or co-author of over 100 articles and six books on the history of media institutions, media activism, and the avowedly political and public foundations of journalism and media policy in the United States. Our conversation with Picard ranges from discussion of his early work on the post-war settlement for American media, where the fundamentals of the current media landscape, including its tendency toward private and consolidated ownership, were first put in place to the critical importance and shortcomings of political liberalism for shaping that mid-century settlement and all that's come after, to finally identifying possible means for recovering and refashioning resilient and diverse public media infrastructures that are better equipped to help leftists resolve the most pressing political, economic, and ecological crises of our moment. We were thrilled to hear from Picard, too, about the points of overlap and complement that exist between his vision for the future of public media and modern monetary theory's vision for the future of public money. Thank you to Professor Picard for joining us. Thanks also and as always to Alex Williams for producing the episode, to Hillbilly Motorbike for the theme tune, to Rich Farrell for making this episode accessible and easily referenceable through the production of clear transcripts, and to Megan Sauce for the brilliant episode graphic. Victor Picard, welcome to Money on the Left. Thank you for having me. So you're the author and editor of numerous books on journalism, media policy, and media history. We asked you to come on our show because we think your affirmation of the public foundations of American media culture resonates with our emphasis on the public foundations of money. We would perhaps even go as far to say that the two are reciprocally bound up with one another. However, before we dig into the details of your arguments and reflections, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your personal and professional background? For example, how did you come to work on media history, theory, and policy? Excellent question. Um, Sometimes I I pause to to ask myself that same question. Um, I certainly didn't originally enter graduate school with the assumption that I would focus on media history. I, I sort of evolved uh, into or perhaps backed into that, that interest area. But I started out um, as an activist. When I first started graduate school, um, I was coming out of the global justice movement. Um, I had been traveling for a number of years, and I arrived at the conclusion that whatever issue I was interested in and whatever social problem I wanted to focus on, and there were, there were many, um, that media would be central to this political struggle. And so early on, um, I became involved with the uh, Independent Media Center movement, uh, focused on indie media. I actually wrote my master's thesis on uh, the uh, indie media model, which was very much, very much based on this radical, anarchic uh, model of consensus-based decision-making. This was proto, this was pre-blogosphere, so it was quite radical that you could create your own media. Um, But at the same time, I was also very interested in changing uh, what we used to call mainstream media. Um, And gradually it became clear to me that to try to change the system, you needed to engage with it at a structural level. 
And in order to do that, you needed to engage with policy, with policy debates, the politics behind those policy debates. And finally, in order to do that, you needed to know the history of this media system. So as I got more interested in political economic questions about the origins of the American media system, it became very clear to me that I needed to hit the archives. Uh, I needed to, to start really getting into the, the understanding the, the uh, origins, the genealogies of this system in order to make systemic change. Um, and that's how I eventually became a history geek. And uh, mm. that's where much of my um, interest has, has been focused. But I've never lost touch with those activist roots. And everything I do um, is based on the assumption that as scholars, to, to paraphrase a, a, a great um, social critic, it's not enough to simply describe the things that we're studying, but the point is to try to change them, to make them better. And, uh, and that's what I dedicate my work to. That's great. Thanks. Um, so yeah, perhaps we can uh, talk about some of the historical work in your first book, America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. And in that book, you sketch a political history of the American media system through analyses of debates in media governance. Specifically, if we're if we're parsing this right, you argue that these turbulent mid-century debates precipitated what you call the post-war settlement for American media. Can you talk about this settlement, maybe touching upon some of the key controversies surrounding them, such as the progressive turn at the FCC, the battle over the Blue Book, the origins of the Fairness Doctrine, maybe some of the, <laughs> the problems with the Fairness Doctrine, or the, 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 the possibilities and limits of the Fairness Doctrine, and um, the debates uh, of the Hutchins Commission. I know that's a lot, but you know, take on whatever you want to take on. I, I would gladly talk about all these things. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I am a history geek, so I can, I can talk about these historical policy battles uh, for hours on end, <laughs> but I, I'll try to keep it a little bit shorter than that. Um, so that book, that project, which uh, came out of my dissertation research, really began with one very basic question, which is how did we in the United States come to inherit a particular kind of media system? And the media system we have in the United States is, is quite exceptional in a number of ways. And, and I use that term exceptional not to suggest that it's, uh, it's a positive thing necessarily, but rather that it's an outlier uh, compared to other media systems around the world. The system we have in the United States is almost entirely commercial. It's only lightly regulated in terms of public interest protections, and it's dominated by a handful of massive corporations. Um, taken together, this, this creates a particular kind of media system, and I had a hunch that we did not arrive at this uh, kind of system necessarily in a democratic fashion. Um, and so as I dug into the archival materials, it quickly became clear to me that to understand how this system developed in the U.S., we really needed to go back to the 1940s. It, it seemed to me that many of these roads, many of these trajectories, these policy trajectories led back to a set of core battles, policy battles in the 1940s. Um, and this, this wasn't necessarily intuitive. Previous historians had focused on 
the 1930s, the 1960s, you know, there were there were these political hotspots that tended to attract uh, historians' attention. 1940s was almost seen as kind of flyover country, uh, you know, 40s and 50s, like aside from little things like World War II, obviously. <laughs> Um, but, but in terms of, you know, looking at how our media system developed, we didn't, we tended not to focus as much on the forties. A lot of, I feel like that's changed since I first started working on this, um, 15 or more years ago. Um, but when I started looking at what was happening, um, you could see pretty quickly that, uh, what some historians might refer to as a critical juncture, uh, was occurring for the, uh, U.S. media system. There was... A number of crises, uh, political crises, technological changes, um, a crisis of confidence, you might say, in, in, uh, in our media system and how the press behaved uh, and operated during the war, for example. There were concerns about propaganda. There were rising concerns about concentration of ownership. There were even concerns about the loss of community newspapers. So there were a lot of parallels. Many of the similar, same concerns that we hear about today uh, were very much in the air in in the 1940s. What you also had was this very rare window. I'm not sure it's ever happened since um, when you had a progressive block at the Federal Communications Commission. And at that time, instead of the five commissioners that you have today, there were actually seven. And out of those seven, four of them were New Deal Democrats, or at least one of them was a progressive Republican. But you had this progressive block um, which created a window um, through which a number of surprisingly radical reforms uh, were at least attempted. Um, what was also interesting about this historical moment is that where the New Deal was in retreat throughout much of, uh, much of the U.S. government at this time, it arrived later and stayed longer at the Federal Communications Commission than it did elsewhere. So it created these conditions for uh, a number of progressive initiatives. And that, those are sort of the case studies that I focus on in that book. You already mentioned them. Um, for example, the FCC Blue Book uh, was an initiative that would have set up this kind of social contract where for broadcasters to hold on to their monopolistic use of the public airwaves, they would have to do things like allocate a certain amount of their programming towards uh, covering public affairs, educational broadcasting, local culture. Uh, none of this really sounded, sounds too radical, um, but, but at the time it was treated as an existential threat to the uh, commercial broadcasters, and they fought this tooth and nail. And, uh, and of course, this, these initiatives started right before this anti-communist hysteria took over, right? So we're talking about roughly 1946. There was still this brief moment where they were pushing through, at least in, within media policy, they were pushing through some, some pretty progressive uh, plans and initiatives. And um, almost immediately, the political terrain shifted on them. And they were, the FCC was accused of doing things like BBC-izing American radio, <laughs> God forbid. Um, this, you know, they were accused, the blue book was called the pink book, and you know, they were being red-baited. And really, there was this exodus. Uh, the last of the New Dealers were chased out of D.C. in you know 1947-48, especially after Truman's uh, loyalty oath program. Um, and many of them fled where where you know where radicals often flee to. They fled to the academy and took refuge 
uh, in various places in the academy. And that's actually where the, how the political economy of media tradition um, took hold, of which the, uh, a tradition that I hail from, um, it took hold in my, in my alma mater at the University of Illinois uh, in, in the person of Dallas Smythe, who had been the FCC's first chief economist and one of the architects of some of these uh, progressive policy plans. Um, so that's another discussion we could get into in terms of the intellectual history of the political economy tradition of media research. But it, going back to the, these, some of these initiatives, you also had, you mentioned the Fairness Doctrine, which today is held up often as like the high watermark for enlightened uh, media policy in the U.S. But what's interesting that I, I found in my research was that reformers saw the Fairness Doctrine as a kind of consolation prize for more structural uh, uh, reforms that they were they were trying to push push through, and so uh, the fairness doc, which what later became known as the fairness doctrine, was established in 1949, and that was kind of the final bookend to this this window in the mid to late 40s where you saw this flurry of you know progressive uh, interventions, um, and uh, and even that was uh, overturned you know several decades later by by the Reagan administration. But one thing about the fairness doctrine that people often misunderstand is that it's not simply allowing two sides. They often conflate it with the equal time rule. It's not about just making sure that two sides have equal time. That's a different rule. The fairness doctrine was about the idea that broadcasters had an affirmative duty to cover controversial issues that were important to local communities and do so in a, in a balanced manner to make sure that they had contrasting views. So it was never assumed that it was just like two sides to the story. It was the idea that you had to have a, a kind of pluralism in terms of you know, the range of, of debate. You had to have different contrasting views on any important subject. Um, so that's, that's very key. That's actually a much more progressive measure than simply saying, you know, we need a Republican and a Democrat to speak on this issue, for example. Um, so anyway, there, there's much more uh, to be said. I, I will say probably the most radical thing that the SEC did during that window was to essentially trust bust uh, a radio monopoly. It broke up. It, it basically sundered NBC uh, into two. It forced NBC to divest itself of one of its two major networks, which is actually how we got ABC. So we went from two big players to three big players. Now, of course, this is like unimaginable today for it to, you know, to beyond comprehension that the FCC could do something like that. But this was at the height of kind of an anti-monopoly push at the FCC. Um, in fact, Dallas Smythe was probably the main person behind this endeavor. But you also could imagine that going from two big players to three didn't really uh, transform the media landscape. So I think that's also an interesting lesson about the limitations to um, some of the anti-monopoly uh, activism that many of us would, on the left would love to see. You know, I would love to see it, but I think we have to be clear that that doesn't solve uh, necessarily all of our all of our problems. Um, so much more. The, the the other thing you mentioned, the Hutchins Commission, that dealt more. That actually dealt with all types of media, but the one it's most known for is focusing on uh, the role of print media, the role of uh, newspapers uh, in, a, in, a, in a democratic society, and it really established some of the normative benchmarks um, for you know what how uh, how journal what journalism is supposed to do in a democratic society, what journalists what journalists themselves are supposed to do, 
and established what later became known as the social responsibility model uh, for the press. We purportedly moved from a lib an earlier libertarian model to a social responsibility model. And that's why at the end of my book, you talked about, you mentioned the post-war settlement. And I look at all these case studies and these core debates and see how they were resolved by the end of the 40s. And, and I see a kind of formation, I refer to this as this post-war settlement for media that really can be uh, defined by three, uh, three characteristics, three criteria, which is one, um, that, the me that media will adhere to a, an industry-defined social responsibility, right? So they, it, they, we're now meant to feel uh, 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 co comforted by the fact that they are now, they have discovered social responsibility and they are going to adhere by it, adhere to it. Um, the second one is that they will be se largely self-regulated or at least only lightly regulated. This is the same um, story the third, that happens with cinema too, right? But earlier. Yeah. Right, yeah. In fact, initially I was writing about, I, I wrote about the Paramount Decree and a similar battle took place uh, in the film industry. Um, but my advisor, why, we came to the wise conclusion that my book, was, my dissertation was already too long yeah, as yeah, it yeah. was. So <laughs> it was tragic that we had to, we had to cut that one out. That never, that never oh, developed into a full chapter. Just one more thing. Did you read that the, the Paramount Decree was now struck down? It's officially done? I have read that. I, I haven't looked at that closely, but I have read yeah. that. So, yeah. No, I mean, we're seeing the culmination of decades-long uh, uh, activism on the right to undo what, refor what reforms were achieved in, during the New Deal. And that, I think, is another example of where, of, of where that uh, has happened. Um, but the third, the third piece, and then then I'll I'll stop going on about this, uh, the, all this this historical stuff, um, or at least we can move on to another historical piece, perhaps. But the third piece that I think is very key, especially for debates today, is that these media organizations would be protected by a negatively interpreted First Amendment that they essentially would capture the First Amendment to further protect them from future regulatory interventions. Now, they wouldn't always be successful in doing that. And you do see a, another high watermark of regulatory activism in the 1960s, where I feel like the, the First Amendment was sort of taken back for a little while. Um, uh, in fact, that's when the, red, the Fairness Doctrine was, was sort of reached its pinnacle, was in the late 60s, um, and it was being protected by uh, First Amendment protections. Uh, but, but essentially that's where you see industry really say media companies in particular say, you know, we're corporations, we have individual rights and that includes being protected by a first amendment. Any sort of, any sort of regulatory infringement is a, is a violation of our first amendment rights. You see this discourse really, it, it, that discourse had been around for a while, but it really crystallized in the late 1940s. And again, was, was really uh, um, given a boost by the red baiting, which allowed industry to basically paint even the mildest regulatory initiative as some sort of socialistic cabal, you know, and, um, and it really drove out and really stamped all of our core systems, whether we're talking about our media system or our healthcare system, all of these core systems 
have this lasting imprint from the 1940s when everything left of center, any sort of regulatory uh, project was, was rendered inherently illegitimate. And, uh, and that's, that left us with what I refer to, especially when we're looking at our media system, uh, it left us with a, what I refer to as a corporate libertarian paradigm. And I think that corporate libertarian paradigm is still very much intact today, although I think we're seeing it fall apart a little bit. I'm, I'm, I have some, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. However, what replaces it remains to be seen. Um, so that those are, we could, we could, uh, we could go in any number of directions from from uh, from that uh, that meandering monologue, but uh, but I'll, I'll I'll stop for now. So we look at what's going on. This is an extreme aggression. Um, I'm also hearing about it from everywhere. It's, it's in the islands. It's on the continent. It's here. It's everywhere. And this is, if you will, a war and all out assault by. The sly fox, cyclops, you locked in the idiot box. The video slots broadcast the Waco Davidian plots. They own YouTube, MySpace. When this ignorant shit gon' stop, they monopolize the news, your views, and the channel you choose. Propaganda, visual cancer, the eye in the sky, number five on the dial. Secret agenda, frequency antenna, Dr. Mindbender. Remote control, soul controller, your brain holder, slave culture, game's over. What's a fox characteristic? Slick shit, censored, misinformation, pimp the station, overstimulation. Perception, deception, Comcast, digital Satan. The fox has a bushy tail, and bush tails lies in fox trots. So I don't know what's real. What you watch, what you watching. Fox keeps feeding us. I very much appreciate that, and I think what we find so compelling about this particular history from your first book is that it represents another way along the path of a theme on this show that has been pervasive throughout the past two years or so that we've been doing this, which is the American history of corporate predation and often specifically banking predation. Whether in our last episode with Rebecca Marcial or others, we've tried to demonstrate the structure of banks as publicly constructed entities and legal entities at that as well as the lending contracts in which they created and the resulting credit that gets allocated, we wanted to suggest that all of this is a policy question. And so what your history provides is another path to this policy question, except through media, specifically corporate media history. You chart how public structures, institutions, and regulatory agencies have produced the outcomes that we are living with and amongst. And ultimately, I think one of the lessons of MMT is that we have to theoretically account for that within any transformational thinking about how we can move forward to altering and rearticulating these legal structures, whether they are media structures or monetary structures, which of course the rub is that money is also a form of media. So from this context, I want to dig into your theoretical apparatus. Because in the book, you do sketch some of the influences of liberal political theory on not only the sort of general trajectory of what you call this settlement into the corporate libertarian model, but also some of the particular actors who are involved in setting up and writing these policies and ultimately constructing the media system that we have today. If you could perhaps take some time to reflect on some of these theoretical impulses that these actors held dear, I think we would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gladly. Uh, and I, I'm glad you, you uh, 
jarred a few thoughts uh, as you were speaking um, it, that, that I think are, I'd like to start out with um, that I didn't quite uh, finalize in my, in my, in my uh, previous monologue, which is that I, I think the, this critical historical approach shows that what we have inherited, and this, is, this could be true for our media system, which is obviously what I focus on, but any of our core systems, um, was not inevitable and was not natural, uh, was not the result necessarily of democracy prevailing or best practices prevailing, but rather, more often than not, it is the end result of particular political interests prevailing over others. And so this kind of critical historical project goes back and recovers those conflicts, recovers that contingency, um, and it's such a critical endeavor. And again, I think it, it, you know, for whatever any any activist, any any project on the left needs to to some extent um, engage with that project, that kind of project, because um, that's what sets it up. That's where we can see quite clearly that these are socially constructed uh, systems, that they are the result of policy choices and policy battles, and um, and so. Uh, what I'm trying to do uh, in my work is to show is really to delegitimate the, the system that we have inherited, to defamiliarize it, denaturalize it, and uh, and I, and I think in order to uh, do that uh, by focusing on these earlier battles, and in particular, what and this is, I think I'm slowly getting to the to the root of your your question. I'm also trying to flesh out what was a social democratic formation. Um, and you know that it's it, our our political vocabulary is so impoverished, uh, and our political imagination in the United States is so constricted that we often don't think in those kind of ideological terms. But there have been moments where a more a more of a social democratic uh, formation has emerged. As much as we're dealing with these kind of libertarian paradigms today, I'm always very clear. That that I don't think of that as is inherently American, right? I, I, don't, I think that's a it's a very lazy narrative that <laughs> libertarianism is just like in the air that we breathe or the water that we drink. It's just part of being an American, and I, that's if you know your history, that's that's patently false. Um, you know, so many of our systems, if we want to look at our our postal system, for example, that was a, that's you know essentially a very socialistic system. Um, that the founders of the republic, not to romanticize them, but that's something that seemed pretty commonsensical to them. Um, so I want to go back to these moments and uncover uh, these kind of social democratic or socialist impulses um, and, and, uh, and to also show that it took political struggle, that for hegemony uh, to, to crystallize, it, it took tremendous struggle uh, from, from, uh, from top down. To you know, to change our, our commonsensical notions, and so looking at what was going on in the '40s, the libertarianism that uh, ended up uh, triumphant um, uh, was very much on the ropes uh, throughout throughout the '30s and '40s, and um, and to try to show how uh, how this trust in the market um, came, you know, emerged, how this market fundamentalism crystallized, you see this ideological. Struggle, and you see it. I mean, one site uh, is to focus on these debates around around media policy, and I think especially since it deals with First Amendment issues, what we think of as First Amendment issues, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, 
It really gets at some core uh, liberal concepts. Um, and one of the ways that it's not a perfect dichotomy, but and I sort of hinted at this earlier, but one of the ways you can make sense of it are you know looking at it in terms of negative and positive liberties. And I think this was very much up for grabs in the 1940s, whether the First Amendment would be seen as something that uh, protected more positive freedoms. So our right to things or collective freedoms, you know, the fact that society uh, writ large should have the right to a diverse and rich media system um, instead of looking at it narrowly as an individualistic right and something that uh, that really we only should should uh, fear uh, government infringing upon. Um, not even corporations, just this idea that, it, that these freedoms must protect us from, from government. Um, this you know, is a core uh, libertarian assumption. Also, um, really emphasizing property rights, protecting property rights, and treating media as a commodity, as a property uh, that's owned by you know, this group of, of, wealthy, rich, of wealthy white men. Um, you know, so th- these are the kinds of... Uh, libertarian and liberal uh, concepts that really crystallize. And I think one more, uh, not, not just, um, you know, accommodating the market, which is so clearly what emerged from, from these debates in so many different ways, um, but also I think a real blind spot with liberalism is to acknowledge pre-existing structural inequities, right? So liberalism is good with coming in and making sure, at least formally, at a formal level, that individuals should all have certain rights of opportunity, perhaps. Um, but it doesn't take into consideration that we're already living in a highly inegalitarian society, um, and that our, our, you know, it's not going to take protecting uh, individual rights is not enough to rebalance, to redistribute power throughout society. And this is what it requires more of a radical approach. And I think this is oftentimes the difference between leftists and liberals, which again, in the U.S., in our current uh, political uh, imagination, those two are often collapsed. Uh, you know, like it's li- liberal, it can mean, uh, you know, any, anything from uh, someone who's uh, barely left of, of, of center to... Uh, you know, to, to, to a radical leftist for, for many uh, Americans. And I think it's useful to try to tease apart these ideological positions and look at some of the underlying assumptions that are associated with these different positions. So I don't know if I totally got to your question, but hopefully I sketched it out um, a little bit. Um, and I'm sure if you, you could probably remind me of some of the other things that I might have... Uh, I haven't looked at that book for a while, so I might, I might have forgotten what I said in it. Well, maybe this is a good point to uh, transition to uh, talking about your 2019 book, a bit more recent, uh, Democracy Without Journalism. And before, before we make that transition fully, I think that another thing that, that your project and the MMT project share in common is, is spending a lot of time um, uh, critiquing and, and meditating on those, those ideological assumptions and, and, and presuppositions that, that drive economic and fiscal policy. Um, so... You mentioned that that a lot of the the concepts kind of crystallized in the 1940s, and I wonder if you can can bring us to the present and your 2019 book by um, sort of helping us 
get a sense for how those concepts have crystallized then evolved and maybe shifted over time to, to kind of um, provide the foundation for the, I don't know, really non-ideal landscape of American media policy and, and practices. How did we got here and, um, you know, why did we get to become or why did we inherit? Why do we have today such an anti-democratic and dysfunctional um, media? And I, mm-hmm. I want to tack something on here as well, which is, um, you know, I think we've been accustomed um, in as scholars and as organizers uh, to periodize the last 40 or so years as representing a, a certain kind of break that, you know, for a while we were calling post the postmodern period. And then we switched and we started calling it neoliberalism and people, people will periodize it and describe it in different ways. But the story that you tell seems to be, you know, backing that you, you see a kind of libertarian marketization happening much earlier. And I'm, I guess I'm curious if you could, through your research and your your arguments, h- how do you narrate the the neoliberal turn, or is there a turn? <laughs> yeah, those those are all excellent questions. And so, if I it, to try to seamlessly continue the narrative, um, so what I try to account for in that uh, earlier book was this rise and fall of a social democratic media reform movement, or at least a project uh, in the 1940s. And, uh, and I think the, the tools, the, the, the intellectual tools that I take out of that book and bring with me into the next book is understanding how this commercialism became so naturalized. And I agree with you, Scott, that this predates the neoliberal turn. And, that, and I try, I mean, I decided not, at one point I thought that's going to be a major argument I'm going to make um, with that first book is that neoliberalism is a much older project than it's often uh, given credit for. And, and, you know, we need to, uh, you know, I was ready to get into this kind of periodization fight. And then I realized, you know, that's really not that important or interesting. Um, You know, like, I I don't want to just quibble with a handful of historians about this. Um, So instead, I want to look at some of these broader uh, forces. And I really think focusing on commercialization, how that becomes naturalized, um, especially within policy discourses. And I think if anything, if you want to say, you know, the neoliberal turn um, really uh, emboldens that discourse um, and you really in, in media policy, you really see it uh, come to fluorescence in, in during the Reagan administration when this deregulatory, you know, deregulation um, move, which really carried on. And of course, deregulation started actually during the Carter administration, but it really took off during Reagan and then continued on. Uh, Clinton was in some ways did as much uh, damage to the to the media system in terms of uh, stripping it of, of, of any sort of public interest uh, regulatory um, uh, constraints. Um, but but. What I what I am uh, trying to show first off is that uh, to try to chip away at this paradigm. First off, this idea that we need to keep government out of our out of our media, out of our media system, that there's no legitimate role for government within our media, is a liberal. It, it, sorry, is a libertarian, also liberal, but a libertarian fantasy. 
government is always involved, always deeply involved in our, in our media system. The question is how it should be involved. Um, should it be involved in uh, you know, maintaining public interest protections um, or should it be there to help, uh, help capital accumulate yet more wealth? Um, and of course, it's typically doing the latter. Um, it has been thoroughly captured. In fact, much of what government has done, especially around media policy, but around any number of policies, is a textbook case of regulatory capture. It's where the regulatories themselves have internalized the values and logics of the very industries they are meant to oversee. Um, and of course, the, the revolving door is, is, a, is a, both a symptom and a driver of, of this process. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, I think that this is important to understand. So I try to bring some of that political economic analysis to our media system to, again, denaturalize it, to show how this happened historically. What were the policy discourses that were deployed um, to naturalize it? And then um, to try to uh, undo that, undo that damage. Um, and another, another key concept, so, so this, my m latest book, is really focused on the long, long history of, of commercialism. And this, of course, goes back vis-a-vis uh, -vis our media system. This goes back to the 1800s. Um, I look at, you know, what happened when the press initially uh, uh, commercialized? How did that change the relationship between the press and, and the public or the polity? They began seeing people as consumers, not, uh, you know, as, as passive consumers instead of uh, engaged uh, citizens, um, and and tracing out, and again, liberalism was very much part of this story. It's very much what kind of gave this kind of uh, uh, you know this this gloss, you know, of like this is the the epitome of American core American freedoms was freedom of the press. But how that freedom of press was defined was defined it was defined in a way that basically sanctified this commercial order. And so what we're seeing today, whether we're talking about what Facebook is doing or the collapse of journalism or the uh, ever-growing power of media monopolies, all of these things trace back to this commercialism, this core commercial logic. And that's what I've seen, you know, that's what I try to trace. So neoliberalism gave that logic a boost, but I don't think you can reduce all this back to that neoliberal turn. It's remained fairly um, consistent um, for, for much, much longer, uh, has a much longer history uh, than just simply beginning in the 19, beginning the story in, the, in say, the 1970s. Um, so I think, you know, one, and one other concept that, that might be useful here is this idea of market censorship. And so this is what happens when, if you look to see what happens when you allow a media system to be governed entirely or almost entirely by these market forces, you have predictable patterns of coverage, predictable um, uh, erasures, predictable um, exclusions. You see what might be called news redlining, whether we're talking about the digital divide or we're talking about how uh, news has never been made, uh, access to our news, news and information has never been made available to communities of color, for example, um, or when they are covered in the media, there's always been great violence done, done to them. Um, so, you know, these, I feel like you need to understand that core commercial logic to understand all these surface level pathologies, like these symptoms that we're often grappling with 
and especially on the left. Media criticism, you know, leftists love indulging in media criticism, but too much of it is articulated in a way where you have, it sounds as if we're saying there are these bad apples, you know, these bad actors, there, there are these bad journalists, or there are these bad media outlets, or even if it, we're talking about corporate-owned media, but we're not getting to the root of the problem. We're not getting to commercialism. Indeed, we're not getting to capitalism. And this is really what capitalism does to a media system. So that, in a nutshell, is what I'm trying to draw attention to um, in this latest book while I'm focusing on the journalism crisis, what's, what's happening, especially this, this utter devastation um, to, to journalism, to commercial journalism in particular, in the United States. Um, and, and in my mind, it's all connected. Can you um, take us through a little a little tour of, you know, how, how specifically, when we're talking about journalism, uh, how this journalism crisis has played out? What are some of the main beats? What are the, some of the main transitions? Um, just, just kind of a little bit more depth sure. on that particular problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where we get a little bit more, you know, we, we've been talking in sort of broad historical and theoretical strokes. And here we can get into more of the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it, the specifics. But all, I feel like the key is always to connect those specifics to these broader um, uh, trends and forces. Um, so for ex- to just throw out a few examples, we are, American newsrooms have been reduced by over half. Uh, since the early 2000s. So when we're talking about the depth of the the journalism crisis, that's one key indicator is that the number of journalists have been uh, wiped out. And how that has played out, I mean, we've seen hundreds, uh, if not thousands of, of uh, news outlets go under um, in, in the last uh, couple decades. Um, but it plays out specifically in how particular beats are no longer covered. And this is especially true for local journalism. So now there are very few, uh, in some states there are essentially none, uh, no journalists covering state legislatures, for example. Increasingly, there are no journalists covering the local school board or what's happening at City Hall. Um, So there's still national coverage. Uh, and and uh, at the surface, there still appears to be, if, if anything, an information glut. You know, we go on the social media. There, it seems like there's plenty of, there's this torrent of, of, of information. But if you go beyond the surface, you see that even in their beleaguered state, many, the, the base of the newspaper industry still serves as the feeder for our entire media system for original information. Um, so, you know, you go to Facebook, you go to Twitter, if you see what, what original information is there, and then oftentimes there's not a lot, but what is there traces back to this suffering uh, newspaper industry. And increasingly we're talking in terms of news, news deserts where entire uh, regions and communities no longer have access to any local news media whatsoever. And of course, this disproportionately impacts lower socioeconomic uh, uh, communities, communities of color, rural areas, other kinds of journalism that are disappearing, international journalism, investigative journalism, policy reporting, the kinds of things that are very expensive to produce, oftentimes aren't necessarily the sexiest stories. One, a story I sometimes use as an example is like the health of your local bridge, right? That's not something that 
that is gonna that's that's not clickbait. That's not gonna sell a lot of advertising. People aren't gonna be you know really excited about that story. But yet, that's a kind of story that we need to know about. We need to know about the health of our infrastructures. Um, and you know the, that kind of reporting, that sort of day in day out beat reporting, is exactly what's disappearing. It's exactly what democracy requires. The, the market, no, the market never supported. Uh, uh, an adequate level of, ju- of journalism. And I'm always clear about that. It's not as if there was some golden era that we need to return to. It was all, it was always a very shaky uh, relationship, but now um, it's, it's a full blown crisis. I think we can still say that now it's worse than, than it's ever been before. Um, and, and the other thing too, that I'm off, I want to be clear about when I'm talking about the nature of the journalism crisis, there's a kind of lazy narrative that the, the internet killed journalism. But this, again, is where, why it's so important to historicize uh, the, the journalism crisis. It didn't just happen in the last 10 years. I argue that commercial journalism has always been prone to crisis, and this is especially true because of its over-reliance on advertising. That historically, the uh, American press, which has been hyper-commercialized to begin with, compared to industries, newspaper industries around the world, but it has been almost entirely reliant on advertising revenue in particular. About 80% of its revenues came from advertising, 20% came from reader support. And so what happened in the early 2000s, especially by 2008-2009, as readers and especially advertisers migrated to the web where digital advertising pays pennies to the dollar of traditional print advertising, that... that uh, business model was just blown to bits. You know, it fell apart. We saw that it was clear in 2008, 2009. Um, but we basically wasted a decade thinking that there's some way to repair that or to find another business model or a a technological fix. Um, and, uh, and, and basically that's not coming back. There is no commercial option. Um, there's no commercial future for the kind of local journalism that democracy uh, requires. So these are some of the ideas I'm really trying to bring to light uh, in, in, in my book. And it's, it's why I ultimately argue uh, so strongly for a public, a public media system, a public option, which I'm sure uh, we'll get into in the discussion. But I really try to trace the history of this, this marriage of convenience. Advertisers never really cared about paying for local journalism. They were trying to reach audiences. And the press owners, the press, the publishers and the press barons, as they used to be called, were delivering audiences to those advertisers for a very pretty price. Uh, and many of those newspapers had local monopolies in their given markets. So if anyone wanted to advertise anything, they had to go to that local newspaper. Um, and this, this arrangement obscured the public good nature of journalism. Um, It naturalized this commercial relationship. But once that was no longer convenient for advertisers, they jumped ship. It's much easier for them to advertise online, much cheaper for them to do that, especially when you get Google and Facebook in the game who happen to be gobbling up what little digital advertising there is you know they no longer they no longer really need advertisers don't really need newspapers uh, very much anymore, and uh, and so that has really brought this artifice into into in, into our into visibility, into clear view, 
Um, and it also presents us an opportunity for creating something entirely different. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. Or I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed... Part of this that resonates really interestingly is the way you discuss what almost seems like commercialization as a sort of project of abandoning the public purpose to this libertarian or liberal fantasy of a market or a marketplace that is divided from the public or is different from the public. Whereas we would suggest that, as you said, the government is always constructing the media system, and ultimately also the banking system, and so on. As we move specifically into the potential for rearticulating some of these systems through the cracks that we see everywhere now in media, could we talk about some of the specific proposals? One of the main MMT proposals in this vein is the federal job guarantee, which acts to guarantee a right to employment to anyone seeking employment at a federally mandated living wage. There certainly seems to me to be some compatibility with the problem of not enough journalists and the potential for a solution that guarantees employment for the public purpose. And if the commercialization or the advertising model was a marriage of convenience, this seems to be a marriage that could really be one for democracy. Thinking with that, and perhaps the analog hovering, what do you think about some of these specifics of public funding for media, and specifically how these relate to the way you draw them out in your work? Yes, well, I obviously think it's a good idea, um, and uh, I think we should do it. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, to, to what you were referring to there, I think, is, is spot on, which is we need to think of news and information um, not as commodities, right, but as public goods, as, as essential public services, that journalism is an essential public service. Um, and this is where we're really, it's really about broadening the political imagination and, and changing the way we understand of, of, about, you know, these, these core systems. And, and I see there are little leverage points, even in the, within this broader libertarian landscape, Americans like libraries, right? <laughs> and, and most Americans think the idea of public education is a good thing too. And most Americans think public parks are, are pretty cool as well and worth protecting. So you see that, that, you know, this in the post office, I, I've, I've been loving how, Americans have rallied to, or many Americans have rallied to the cause of the, of the, of the United States postal system. Um, it shows you that, it, that, these, that, that protecting these public goods and things like media subsidies are as American as apple pie. Um, and so just uh, rhetorically, as, as you all would, would appreciate, I think it's important that we 
frame things uh, and you know get people thinking about you know these are these are uh, absolute prerequisites for having any semblance of democratic uh, society. We all learn in school that democracy requires a, a free and function by implication functional press system, um, but we rarely reflect on you know what are the necessary policies and protections and infrastructures and even discourses uh, that we need to maintain those systems. And I do think now, you know, any crisis is also an opportunity. And as we see the commercial model for the press collapse in such a spectacular way, um, and I do think there's growing recognition of this, growing recognition that the market is driving journalism in the ground, I think it creates fertile uh, conditions to try to think about creating a new public system, a new public media system, whether we're building on uh, you know some of the structures that are already there, even including the public broadcast system is is a possibility. I advocate actually building on the postal system itself as a as a key as a core, um, almost you could think of it as like an anchor infrastructure. Um, so uh, I think there are many ways that that we can do this, but it starts out discursively by thinking in those terms that you were just laying out, this idea that we need to think about journalism, money, and, and, and jobs, and things that, that you know, shouldn't be uh, dictated by the market, right? that should be taken out of the market, buffered from market forces as much as possible, but taken out of the market so that it's not driven by this commercial logic. Um, and if you th- sometimes I use this analogy we're all academics here, so I think, uh, although sometimes this, this, is a, this hits a little too close to home, but imagine if this same logic were applied to academic labor, um, if, our, if our articles, uh, if our peer-reviewed journal articles didn't get enough clicks or likes or shares, then we'd have to just stop doing that, do something different, or maybe worse, lose our jobs. Now, of course, that is happening to some it extent. It is happening. So I don't, yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't want I, I to speak in terms of that right. just being merely theoretical. But for many academics, we still think that there's some inherent worth to what we're doing that doesn't reduce itself to how much money it's making. You know, I mean, a bit, maybe a better example is like, what if, what if uh, students just didn't want to take math class? Uh, and then, you know, and, and, and math, their math class, they weren't paying for their math class. And so... Um, you know, then we'll just have to discontinue that. Or what if there's a fire, your house is on fire and the, and the, and the, the firefighters show up and say, well, you've got to pay up before we put this fire. You know, there are just so many examples of where we would never leave it up to, uh, this market determination. And I think it's that kind of logic that we need to not only recover, but expand on. Um, and that, so I try to start, you know, discursively, with those ideas, thinking in terms of public goods, market failure is one I play around with a little bit as well. I think of it as systemic market failure. Um, but, you know, I think we need to claw back um, some of these core systems and infrastructures and put them under public ownership, which is, I, I think this is where the conversation's heading, and I'm, I'm all for that. So maybe... You know, I I think I have a little bit of a, a dearth of imagination about the, you know, like what, what we can do about, let's say, newspapers, right? So are, what, what do we need to do? Do we need to 
fund them with federal grants? Do we need to staff them? And if we do, how do we how do we allocate the money? How do we make sure that that staffing is equitable? I'm sure these are things you think about all the time. Maybe walk us through, at least in, let's say, news journalism, what some of the specific recommendations you have. Sure. So um, I'll start out with the ideal, um, which which um, I, I've started. I, I think it's clear in my book, but it's it's as I'm speaking on the book. Uh, you know, this often happens where it's like some of your ideas really don't actually come together until after the book's you know well well and done and out there in the world. Um, but I think the ideal would have would, would would be to have publicly funded news cooperatives in every community across the country. That, that would be the ideal. And, and to add some, some flesh onto those bones, um, these new newsrooms of the future would be uh, locally uh, owned and controlled, owned and controlled by local communities, as well as the journalists themselves. And I, you know, I think some of, some of these details need to be worked out. Some of them I also uh, don't think it's my role to present a formula for, I think local communities should decide for themselves. Um, but I think the key part is to make sure that the institutional and, and, and especially the financial resources are there for these newsrooms to be functional. Um, and that's why I say publicly funded. Now, whenever I'm talking about this new public media system, I mean public not in name only, but actually publicly owned and controlled and democratically uh, governed so that I think there should be a federal guarantee um, that you know the federal government has an affirmative duty to ensure that those resources are there for local communities, but the federal government should have no control beyond that, beyond providing for those resources. It should not dictate in any way how that new how those news operations happen, um, and that's where we need to devolve power as much to the local grassroots level as possible. We can think in terms of news bureaus that are uh, democratically elected. Um, we need to make sure they're representative of the community, of diverse, you know, we've got to make sure labor unions are represented and, and diverse communities are, are represented. So I always, one of the things I often say is that these new newsrooms should look like the communities that they serve as well. Um, so we ha must make sure that they're uh, diverse in, in all ways. Um, uh, so th those are just some, but it goes back to the idea that they have to be funded, right? They, they need those resources, and, uh, and that just should be non-negotiable. It's, it's not a nice to have. It's a must have. Um, and so this is where, you know, this, this is when I have to get into all the fights and arguments about, well, how are we going to pay for it? And <laughs> and which I know you guys are all, you know, very much engaged in those kinds of, uh, those kinds of debates. But, um, but I do, I think we need to fund them. They, I mean, our current, and there are things that we can salvage from the current system, you know, and, and I, you know, to rescue good assets from bad owners. Uh, and, and I'm all, I'm all about doing that, but I'm very key, very clear that, uh, that the first step is to decommercialize our media system, decommodify it. Uh, but the second step is to radically democratize it, and uh, and those things have to be done um, together, uh, and uh, you know, and to, in order to reach anything close to what 
what I'm advocating for. And, and I'll point, I get, I get into this in the conclusion of my book. Um, but, but, uh, but, but I'm really influenced by Eric Olin, the late great Eric Olin Wright's, uh, work on, on how, how to build this kind of socialist future from the ashes of the, of, of capitalism, or rather ashes wouldn't even be the right term. These little pockets, again, he's a huge fan of libraries, right? There, there are just these little pockets that we can build on, um, these kind of counter hegemonic forces, these, these anti-capitalist spaces uh, within the broader capitalist system that I think we can try to build on, see those as sort of potential building blocks for this new kind of system. And in, in terms of the federal jobs guarantee, we, we talk a lot about like shovel-ready projects. You know, you bring up a job guarantee, the, the critique of people like... I don't need to call anybody out, but one of the critiques is, or the worries about that is it'll be make work, right? Um, just paying people to do jobs nobody needs to do. And then, of course, you look around your own community and there are a hundred thousands of things that need to be done and could be um, well-paying, you know, provide well-paying jobs. And I wonder if there's, it seems like there's an analog with the public media system that you're talking about where there are, you know, you talk about the ideal system, but in my community, and I'm sure in, in y'all's communities too, there are plenty of great projects already ongoing that are constantly asking for money. Like we've got a beautiful local radio station, right? That's constantly fundraising. Um, I don't know if where NPR falls in this, but like local NPR stations that are constantly fundraising. Um, and I, you know, I'd be remiss to not talk about podcasting too, mm-hmm. right? The medium that we're on right now, um, some of my favorite things to listen to are, you know, they they run by Patreon, which is not not commercialized, right? Um, but there seems to be like a lot of production ready uh, media projects and news co ops that are just waiting to be activated that they could be under your your current system. Yes, or, or in, yeah. under the the system that you're describing. I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm really glad that you mentioned podcasting because something it's it's one of those things where, like in my mind. It's, it's clear as day, but I realize that I, you, I need to articulate this, which is when I'm talking about the future, these future newsrooms, these future, this future public media system, I'm imagining public media centers in every, uh, every community, and those media centers are multimedia. So it's not about producing the dead tree version of the new, you know, it's, it's about all kinds of media being produced by local journalists. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's no reason why we couldn't be funding that. Um, and you know, and I do, you look historically and you see moments, it's, I, I'm always inspired by the, the, the brief, the, that brief moment when you had these WPA projects of funding everything from like planting trees to, uh, subsidizing writers and, and theater groups and historians and, like we could do that. Yeah, there's no reason why we couldn't do that on a permanent basis. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. Another uh, example is just building out our broadband system. I mean, you know, I think it's people are painfully aware of how awful our our broadband system is. When we hear this phrase "digital divide," it sounds like something from like the 1990s, you know, and it's like glaring. It's this glaring problem today. And that's something that could, you know, that's building out infrastructure. That, that's jobs. That's just like, there's just so many good reasons uh, to do a project like that. We're, 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 based, we're literally, in some cases, dying for this, uh, for, you know, for the lack of it. And, uh, and so I, I couldn't agree with you 
more that there's there's a need and it's something that we could do but it's it's a it's a political decision that we're not doing this and so uh you know we need the politics uh in place to make sure that we do do it well into the future i think something i'd like us to um talk about before we we wrap things up is um Part of your work is that you're a a keen diagnostician of the pathologies of our American media system and especially the contemporary system. And I think uh, a lot of people have a lot of arguments about um, the privatization of of news and information and and mediation and, and disinformation. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about that. And maybe, I mean, I guess I'm also interested in how you see the contemporary problems around um, disinformation in relationship to the kind of longer history of like yellow journalism and, and you know, media moguls like William Randolph Hearst, etc. Yes, yes, I think I can connect those dots. Um and, you know, again, I mean, one uh, critique that in my mind connects a lot of these pathologies that you just mentioned, whether we're talking about uh, myths or disinformation um, or these other commercial excesses such as, uh, you know, what was then called yellow journalism, might, today might be called uh, clickbait, um, or you can't really say fake news anymore because that's been... Um, so, uh, so captured and, and, and obfuscated, but, um, but, but I, I feel like without, um, harping on it too much, I think the core root of many of these surface level, um, uh, pathologies is this commercialism at the heart of it all. So, uh, you could say capitalism at the heart of it all. Um, you know, so like the fact that misinformation is proliferating through our social media that's that's not accidental and it, and it's not because people are stupid right it, it's 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 actually the business model that's driving that it's it's every, you know it's everything about trying to uh optimize engagement and collect data about it you know this this phrase uh surveillance capitalism which is now very much part of our vocabulary although the focus is the emphasis is often more on the surveillance part and less on the capitalism part but I think it does get at this idea that this is baked into the system. And this is, this is what I try to argue in my book as well, that, that many of these problems we're dealing with today trace back to the very DNA of our commercial media system. Um, this is where it leads us, not to sound too overdetermined, but this is, you know, we've been, if you know the long history, you see this flare up again and again. You see these excesses flare up. You see public reactions you see industry do just enough to, to make sure they are not regulated. Um, we didn't mention before this whole idea of deregulation is such a misnomer, right? It's, there's, it, there's no such thing as deregulation. It's always regulated. Again, it's a question of how, as a society, we're going to regulate it. And that also gets at a point earlier where I think it strikes, the, it, it draws a difference, a distinction between liberalism and leftism, which is... The liberal solution for many of these problems are, is about an individual fix. Like individuals need to pay more for their local NPR station. Individuals need to be more media literate. Um, individuals need to um, uh, throw out their, fa- you know, discontinue their Facebook account. You know, it's just always about 
what can we as individuals do? It's not seen this as our problem collectively. This is a social problem. It's a collective action problem. Um, this is, these are the terms we should be speaking in. Um, so I, do, I think that uh, one of the barriers, one of the discursive enablers to so many of these problems has been to naturalize the market, not see the market and, and commercialism um, as a root cause to these problems, but also misdiagnosing the potential uh, solution, which is often this kind of individualistic liberal approach uh, that accommodates the market. You know, we need to pay more for our news. It's our fault for not paying for the news. Like, no, that's not, it's society should be guaranteed access to a certain level of news and information. Um, so both in terms of quantity and quality. Uh, so a long way of saying that um, we have a lot of work to do uh, ahead of us to, to, to fix these problems. But what I also try to you know, end on is that despite, you know, as you noted, Scott, I'm, I'm very keen to point out the pathologies and I think media criticism, um, all forms of political critique are absolutely essential but I don't want to just stay on the doom and gloom. I mean, I'm, despite all of this, despite all these problems, I'm weirdly optimistic uh, about, about the future, about at least the potential of creating entirely new structures. Um, and, and, you know, I think especially among young people today, they're not enthralled to market fundamentalism. I think that there are all kinds of political openings ahead of us. Of course, we could still veer towards fascism. Uh, you know, it's, the future is very much open-ended. But, uh, but, but I do have some hope that there is a kind of socialist alternative, um, that, uh, you know, democratic alternative, that, um, that I think uh, is within reach. But it's just it's going to be a long, hard slog to get there. Yeah, that's... And we could still have, still have tote bags in that future, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's okay. right. Still Good. get your tote bag. Absolutely. <laughs> tote bags for all. Um, well, this has been this has been really fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I think all of our intuitions about the deep resonances between your project and our project uh, have all been um, <laughs> played out and and um, confirmed. You know, I mean, when I when I sit and hear you talk about you know, the public foundations of media and how they've been privatized and commodified and the way that, you know, essentially we've created these contingently constructed media deserts, uh, which suggests a kind of artificial scarcity. Um, not only do I hear money in all this, not only do I hear um, money as a medium is all those things and it's suffering from all those pathologies, but as Max brought up when we began this conversation, um, we think that these two things are absolutely, you know, implicated in one another. And that if we want to have a democratic, socialized, community-oriented uh, public media system, we're going to have to overcome the privatization and false scarcity around money and the notion that even we as individual taxpayers have to, you know, cough up more, you know, from our bleeding hearts <laughs> to, to pay more right. taxes uh, in order to have good public media. And I think our response would be, no, this is this is about public provisioning. 
and you can't run out of spreadsheets just like you can't run out of data. Um, and so the question is not if we're going to regulate it or if we're going to do something, it's how are we doing it and what's the best way forward. So anyway, th I just wanted to, to close on, um, on some of those summary remarks. I don't know if you have some final thoughts. Yeah, no, I agree. It's everything that you're saying makes uh, good good sense to me. And I do, I also I, I like that you put your finger on this artificial scarcity problem because that's um, you know that's often that's problem uh, in so many of these policy debates. And I think that is something that we uh, need to get beyond um, in order to to push forward to a more um, you know progressive future. So let's let's uh, you know keep. Keep working at it. Let's continue these uh, conversations. But thank you so much for having me uh, on your show. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me about this stuff. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. And uh, and and, and uh, you know, I think I think there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. But it, th these, this is also fun. So um, please, please keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. And. 